walking upstream in the little gorge below the barrier fall at Shinamu to our second net in a pool at a tight dogleg turn where yesterday we saw at least four young of year humpback chub. Hopefully some of those fish will be in the net. Grand Canyon, where hidden forces shape our ideas, beliefs, and experience. Join us as we uncover the stories between the colorful walls. And add your voice for what happens next at Grand Canyon. Hello and welcome. My name is Kate. You're listening to Behind the Scenery. Welcome to the water world at the bottom of a mile-high desert. Tributaries and streams flow down steep cliffs and side canyons to meet at the river. The Colorado River and Grand Canyon is sandwiched between dams at both ends of the park. Glen Canyon Dam at the top and Hoover Dam at the bottom. After Glen Canyon Dam blocked the river in 1963, people started noticing that it impacted the community of animals and plants at the bottom of Grand Canyon. The dam had altered the riparian world downstream. A wave of change hit the aquatic environment. Well, that's home to water bugs and to fish. It changed the river for people too. In today's episode, we are going to explore how the Glen Canyon Dam changed the Colorado River and share one story about the struggles of wildlife to survive in a damned world. talk about what the river was like prior to dams, just to draw the contrast. This is Bob Shelley. He's a fisheries biologist for the Native Fish Ecology and Conservation Program at Grand Canyon. The Colorado River, which is a, a big desert river draining a pretty arid landscape, so pre-dam, it, it was characterized by really large snowmelt-driven spring runoff events. And so it was typical in a spring runoff to see flows through Grand Canyon in excess of 120,000 CFS. So that's cubic feet per second. A cubic foot is about the size of a basketball. So imagine 120,000 basketballs flooding past you every second. So you'd have these big uh, sediment-laden spring floods, and then through the summer, the river levels would drop to comparatively low base flows of 5,000 CFS or less. And in addition, those floods would carry lots of driftwood, so you had woody debris. They would build enormous sandbars and create backwater habitats related to the deposition of sediment. And there would be a temperature differences. You have very warm water in summer and, and of course, in winter at base flows, the coldest temperatures close to freezing. A flood that big 
was like a flush to the toilet, a big whoosh down the canyon. It purged things, but also brought nutrients to the canyon body. It was like a seasonal detox. Oh, damn. That pretty much all of those details have changed. So now the reservoir upstream, Lake Powell behind Glen Glen Canyon Dam, captures the big spring runoff. So you don't see a pulse. So it's... In effect, it's flattened that hydrograph. You no longer have the big floods through Grand Canyon, and the base flows don't get as low as they did historically. The canyon used to have a pulse, a heartbeat that ran with the seasons. The dam flatlined that pulse. If the river is the heart of the canyon, the dam now regulates how that heart beats. But you see more daily fluctuations because dam is generating power, and at peak power demand, they increase the release. So over a 24-hour cycle, you see uh, rise and fall of the river, which in the, in the years right after dam closure was quite extreme. Water released by the dam was extreme for humans, too. There are people on the river in Grand Canyon, floating on rafts and kayaks, navigating rapids every day. At night, they tie in their boats, some large enough to carry 15 people, to stakes on the beach, and settle in to sleep to the sound of the river. Stories about uh, people boating through Grand Canyon and waking up after a night's sleep and finding their enormous S rig 10 feet up on the beach just uh, stranded. Uh, these days, the that daily fluctuation is less. It might be on the order of one and a half or two feet. But you have, you have daily fluctuations, a more constant hydrograph throughout the year, and it's a cold, clear release because it comes out of the bottom of the reservoir. So in summer now, the river is very cold, which it didn't used to be the case. And in winter, the water is actually warmer than it would have been uh, pre dam The river is so cold, it's really hard to swim in. The changes that happened to the Colorado after the dam changed many aspects of the corridor in Grand Canyon, from the size of beaches, to the experience of boating, to the lives of the plants and animals that depended on that watershed. So today's story goes underwater with the fish. Let's meet Rebecca Kohler, who has a long career at Grand Canyon, extending back over 20 years. She had her start in the vegetation program that began with fisheries in 2016. Rebecca is now the natural resource specialist for the Native Fish Ecology and Conservation Program. Uh, So, um, yeah, Grand Canyon, um, originally there were eight um, native fish in um, the Grand Canyon um, uh, River, and there were uh, six of those were endem- are endemic. Endemic means that creature only lives in that geographical location. So these endemic fish are special because they only live in the Colorado River watershed that's around the canyon. Um, and four of them uh, have been extirpated, and two of them are now endangered. Let's look at that word, extirpated. 
It's similar to extinction in that they have disappeared, but instead of disappearing from the entire world, they've been rooted out of a local area. Similar to how grizzly bears, which are on the state flag of California, are extirpated from California today. Um, so, like Bob mentioned, the Colorado pike minnow um, has been extirpated from um, the Colorado River through Grand Canyon. Um, it does still exist, um, I think, in pretty low numbers, Tom Bob, in the um, upper basin. Um, yeah. They're declining, yeah. Yeah, and that was that was one of yeah the one of the large predatory fish, and the other the other ones that have been extirpated from Grand Canyon is um, the bony-tailed chub, uh, um, round-tailed chub, um, and is that it? Yeah, with pike minnow. And the, yeah. and the pike minnow, right, right. So, and then the other two that are endangered are the humpback chub and the razorback suckers. Out of the eight original native fish. The humpback chub has become a crowd favorite. The humpback chub is special within this group in that they're a long-lived fish, 40-plus years, and they're habitat specialists on canyon-bound reaches. So pre-dam, humpback chub were not widespread throughout the basin. They were found in uh, canyon reaches that have that have big rapids and deep water within gorges. Within the mile deep gorge of Grand Canyon, the river pools into eddies after going through rapids with waves taller than people. It was the perfect habitat for the humpback chub. Well, what else is cool about the chub? When you look at it, it has a face kind of like the canyon mules. This narrow, rounded face, and above that face rises a big hump. And large adults develop this weird, uh, fleshy hump that that uh, sticks out above the head. And there have been a number of theories about why, because it's not just humpback chub, razorback sucker, and you can tell by the name, have this similar uh crest, if you will, or a, a, a feature above the head that makes them deeper bodied. And the theory that I like most, and I, I think there's some experimental evidence to support it, so why, why multiple uh, lineages have evolved this feature, this humpback-like feature, is that it, uh, Colorado pike minnow, which was the one big predator prior to invasives gaining a foothold in the basin, uh, are gape-limited. So they, they can't open, even though they get very big, pike minnow get six feet long, or they did historically. Uh, the, their ability to open their mouths is kind of surprisingly limited for as big a fish as they are. And it turns out that in humpback chub and razorback sucker, once they reach a certain size and this hump starts to develop, they become invulnerable to predation. They don't fit into the mouth of, of a pike minnow except the very largest pike minnow. These fish evolved especially to interact with each other in this specific place. This doesn't happen everywhere. 
What we're looking at is a predator and prey relationship that went on for centuries before the river was dammed. Time enough for our chub to evolve one mean hump that was too big and too tough for the shark of the Colorado River to swallow. Now that the dam is here, the entire fish population is completely caught in the Grand Canyon between the two dams. Um, as Bob mentioned earlier, um, the humpback chubs, great, the largest population of humpback chub remaining is in um, Grand Canyon, and it's centered around the Little Colorado River. And it's sort of thought of as the um, center of the humpback chub universe. Uh, and so as a result of the dam operations, it was identified um, as a conservation measure to establish another um, second spawning aggregation of humpback chub within Grand Canyon, recognizing that that little Colorado River population is, you know, is still vulnerable to, um, to catastrophic events, say a weather event, flooding or contamination or whatnot. So, um, so it was, um, identified that that was important um, to establish that um, second spawning aggregation. And so I think in the 2000s um, or around 2000, there was a study published looking at potential other um, locations for translocations, other tributary locations. And in that study, um, it was that three sites were identified. Um, they identified Havasu Creek, um, Shinamu Creek and Bright Angel Creek as um, potential um, translocation areas that would support humpback chub um, populations. And they were looking at like water quality, temperature, and then also um, the presence of non-natives. Little gorge below the barrier fall at Shinamu. Remember this? To our second net in a pool at a tight dog leg. Between 2009 and 2014, a fish crew at Grand Canyon began to proactively reintroduce humpback chub to Shinamu Creek, giving them another home to recover from the dam. And, um, all indicators uh, up to that point were that the fish were doing well. They were, they were growing and surviving in Shinamu Creek. Um, and then in 2014, there was a fire on the north rim and um, subsequent flooding into that Shinamu drainage, which um, essentially wiped out all of the all of the fish um, population in that creek, including the humpback chub, blue-eyed suckers, speckled dace, um, and all other uh, fish species there. So, um, so it was a, it was. I think what is um, interesting about that whole project was. Again, we we learned that you know these populations of humpback chub continue to be vulnerable to those catastrophic events, and so um, so fortunately we've um, we've done work in Havasu Canyon and Bright Angel. Um, when you have an endangered species like the humpback chub that only lives in a small area, a catastrophic event like a fire or flood could cause them to go extinct. In order to increase the habitat range of the humpback chub, the fisheries crew would have to tackle another problem. The fact that invasive species are outcompeting the humpback chub 
in the creeks they once called home. So we started electrofishing the entire um, reach of Bright Angel Creek, um, which is about 13 miles in 2012. And um, that effort involves um, backpack electrofishing with crews of, you know, six to 10 people. I met fish crew down in the backcountry at Bright Angel Creek and joined them in the water as they pounded in a weir that would keep non-native trout out of the creek. Afterward, we met back in a round table at the employee cabin to get the scoop on non-native fish removal. Okay, my name is Nick. Uh, I've been involved with this project for quite a while now. I forget how many years, but it's... My favorite part about this is you're in this pretty magical place um, getting to... In my opinion, you're doing really good work. We're, like I mentioned earlier, we're restoring um, these native fish or we're trying to restore their habitat. Um, yeah, and I guess getting to outreach to people and explain what we're doing and especially having those people, some of them have come and volunteered on our crew and just, I guess over the years, we've seen people with a negative outlook kind of switch to a positive outlook and I mean we're seeing more native fish and more people that are on board with this. Uh, my name's Mike. Uh, I've helped out with this project on and off since 2012 and I've also done uh, fisheries work throughout the Colorado River with similar fish as down here and it's just kind of cool um, working on this project which is you know, it's the same the same goal as projects elsewhere that I've worked with, but same species, um, different place. And I don't know, it's just, it's cool being a part of a project that has gone on for this long and there's really great people working here. My name is Ray. Yeah, I've been a technician here for, this will be my sixth season on the Bright Angel, uh, the Bright Angel crew. And uh, what I really like about this job in this position is that you know this will be my sixth year and working the last five years you actually notice a difference um every year you know as you work down from the source all the way down the Colorado River with 13 miles of electrofishing you can I see a difference in less and less non-native fish and more and more uh, native fish so I think the biggest thing for me is just being able to see that difference over a period of you know five years and it's pretty awesome it makes me want to keep coming back and uh, keep doing this work and another thing is just in terms of the job the place you get to work in the bottom of the Grand Canyon and that's pretty awesome uh, the people you work with are pretty great uh, some of my best friends I met on this uh, job and uh, it doesn't help that uh, well my supervisors in the room but uh, the people you work for are also great and not just saying that because he's in the room here, but uh, I really do think that, uh, yeah, you work for great people, with great people, in a great place. And, uh, it's pretty awesome. The main goal is to create a habitat 
friendly for the humpback chub, which historically uh, lived in Bright Angel Creek, or at least it's assumed, at least down in the river, uh, like Delta area of Bright Angel. And there are lots of brown and rainbow trout in it now, thanks to some people back in the early 1900s stocking it who worked for the Park Service. Yes, rangers were stocking creeks in the 1920s with sport fish from Europe like brown trout and rainbow trout. There are pictures of rangers on mules slung with old milk cans full of non-native fish. In Bright Angel Canyon, rangers were even operating a fish hatchery to actively stock the creek with lots of non-native babies. The non-natives flourished after the dam was put in, out-competing local fish and interrupting the river food chain. Today's fisheries crew had a lot of work to do, or undo, in Bright Angel Creek. The whole goal of the park service is to preserve and protect the resources within the park for future generations. And unfortunately, our predecessors did uh, put non-native fish into the creeks, but now we're restoring those native fish that are here, or at least making it making the habitat available for them so they can potentially persist into the future for future generations to come experience. Nick, that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ray. <laughs> oh, and I guess we could talk about how the tributaries within Grand Canyon are kind of like a stronghold for, for the native fish. Well, c could be. I guess the river is highly modified. You know, Glen Canyon Dam is up there uh, releasing cold, clear water that's super unnatural for this river's historical flows and sediment load. And so the tributaries are really important to the native fish for spawning and for, you know, the like rearing of younger fish. And so this is like just one little piece of a, a larger um, effort to like restoring the chub as there's other projects and another tributary or two restoring the chub. Well, I may not be as qualified to discuss <laughs> this, but just from personal observation, from uh, talking to people who have been coming to Phantom Ranch for you know, tens of years, uh, one observation, it could be from the trout removal or not, but uh, you know, trout kind of prey upon macroinvertebrates and so uh, thing people have noticed is more birds entering the area that are feeding upon flying insects that maybe were otherwise have been consumed from trout. That now that niche is open, more insects maybe leads to more birds coming in. So I think the last Christmas bird count, they got a high species richness bird count. One of the concerns about the brown trout is they aren't just out competing native fish, they are eating everything in the creek. From the small native fish like speckled dace to those aquatic insects, which start their lives underwater but come flying insects like caddisflies and mayflies. They're the base of the food chain for a lot of birds. One of the neat things that I've observed in my time down by Braid Angel Creek is over the past couple years, I'll never forget the first time I saw a great blue heron going through the creek 
and caching those little speckled dace minnows. The amazing thing is you likely would not have seen a heron there five years ago because the trout had eaten out their traditional food source. I would say uh, a benefit of trout removal is this expansion and really increase in numbers of native fishes. And although some of these natives are endangered and still can't be angled as sport fish yet, I think one day that should be an ultimate goal because fish like the humpback chub and roundtail in the upper basin and maybe one day in Grand Canyon, the large native predator pike minnow, which which could grow to up to six feet long. I think that uh, one day those fish could be very appealing to people to angle, the native fish that evolved in this system. And for people who are trout enthusiasts, I think there are plenty of places to go and fish for trout in their native range. But one day I'd like to see Grand Canyon as a destination for anglers who are interested in fish diversity where it's found naturally. And it would be the experience of a lifetime to catch a large pike minnow in the Grand Canyon. For me, that would be angling gold. It's about 13 yeah. miles from the uh, source all the way to the confluence of the Colorado River. So it's pretty cool we get to start up in October, basically uh, starting at the source. Uh, Source Brangel Creek actually consists of Roaring Springs and Angel Springs, and we were fortunate enough to be able to shock up the entire length of Roaring Springs and Angel Springs in October, and then by around February-ish, mid-January, we make it closer to the confluence. And it's pretty cool because as we start up at the top um, at Angel Springs, uh, it's the leaves are starting to change, and then throughout the season as we're working our way downstream we drop um, in an elevation so we're kind of chasing fall all the way down to the confluence and it's, it's kind of cool that you know we just work with the leaves as they change. <laughs> on my winter backcountry patrols I would look down on a team of women and men and waiters. In their hands were yellow human-sized wands that they would jab into the water. Just because anytime we're shocking in the stream, there's two electro fishers, so there's a, it's a backpack basically that you wear, and there's two of them, so there'll be uh, two people wearing them. There's I just said that a bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> So there's two people wearing these backpacks in the stream, and they're followed by netters, people netting fish as they're shocked up, and bucketers, people bucketing the fish that are netted. Anyway, long story short, people, when they walk past us on the trail, they make the joke. We probably hear this joke. Uh, you know, once a day, twice a day, but at least once a day, that we look like we're Ghostbusters. Because they're big square backpacks, and so people say, Hey, you guys catching ghosts down there? And then, uh, you know, depending on uh, the mood I'm in, I will either joke with them or tell them about a little bit about the project and what we're doing. It's really good public outreach starting with it. walking on bowling balls. But what's that show? This can be edited out. Yeah. What is the... The American Ninja Warrior. American Ninja Warrior. Because 
climbing over oh, yeah, cascades. You're, you're, you're pulling yourself through through overhanging vegetation and climbing up over waterfalls. It's it's pretty uh, arduous getting up the creek, and sometimes people can slip and top their waders and you know need to take five. But it's it is an adventure getting up the creek, especially in the upper reaches of Bright Angel, where it's very high gradient. Working in fish crew requires a blend of wilderness skills and meticulous data collection. Are they Carassius erratus, which is just gold? I think they are. Are gold? I think, yeah. Whoa. This is H7, I hope. Which is a minnow. I have no idea what this is. This is Enya. Enya. 442, 416. Similar to last fish. Size. This one was tagged. It was not tagged. UNN? We got it. I got it. You got this? Yeah, you just did it. Wow, I'm on 296. You were. This is a recap. No. Head a little this way. Thank you, Ray. Recap, no. I didn't get a weight. Was it weighed? I think it was 597, but it was weighed. Now it weighs that plus a pit tag. Jesus. Yeah, 597. Throw it in, Mike? Yes. Yeah, I'm done with it. Recap, no. Well, everyone, the whole team's in the creek. You got your two shockers up front, and... When the whole team's down there, you say, okay, everyone ready? <laughs> and then you say, okay, shocking. You check your time and the shockers put their thumbs on the on the anodes button and we're off. And any any trout that are within like a eight foot radius of the the wand will be drawn into that into the ring at the end of the wand. And after if they w reach a distance from that they'll go uh what's the word oh it's you know, hope not tetany but tetany. they do. just just like when they're knocked out what's the scientific scientific yeah. for being like, knocked out sort of pre-tetany i think <laughs> but, uh, they're stunned oh yeah there's okay so they're stunned once they get close enough and um thankfully the creek is really clear because sometimes they they might get stunned deep down or sometimes they shoot across the the field but um usually you can see them because they got a white belly and they they kind of flash and the netters will scoop them up sometimes if you're in a big cloud of of dace they'll just be flowing downstream like they look like leaves or something they just keep coming and coming and coming um but yeah we're mostly just scooping every single fish we see and putting them into into buckets filled with water and belly For the past decade, each year the fish crew returned in the fall. Over time, what they found in their studies started to change. Uh, so in the when this project was initiated in about 2012, trout, both brown and rainbow trout, were the predominant fish species in the creek, and they were very dense, so that over the course of a whole season, more than 10,000 trout were removed. Whereas today we've succeeded in reducing trout by more than 95%. And 
Uh, last winter, we removed only around 300 brown trout. So that's a very successful suppression effort. And the other side of that coin is that we've seen a real rebound of native fishes, both in numbers and in their range. So 10,000 trout meant buckets of non-native fish lined the creek. This is a huge success story in Grand Canyon. And in today's world, isn't it good to hear about species coming back from the brink? Now finding a non-native fish can be its own challenge. It's a big deal. Exciting sometimes when the water is flowing pretty fast and you're in a group of, there's five to eight of us in the stream and uh, we're trying not to fall, we're slipping around, and then trout and fish are shooting like, you know, through our legs, the water's fast, and we're trying to net fish, and we're like, hey Mike, there's a fish over there, get in! And he jumps, jumps across the channel, scoops up the fish, and says, I got the trout, I got the trout! And then it's, it's pretty exciting. And then, if we're up top, like around Cottonwood, we maybe we haven't seen any native fish yet, and we're, you know, the water's flowing super fast, and we're trying not to fall again, and, this trout going between our legs and we're netting all of a sudden somebody pulls up the net and then there's a there's a maybe a flannel mouth bluehead sucker in there and we're like yeah first sucker of the season this is awesome and just kind of it's very exciting very exhilarating uh, it's almost like we're ghost busting except we're trout busting <laughs> trademark <laughs> so it kind of it takes a while for you to hone in on like just where to stick your net when you see them it's it's kind of it's like a game almost like a it's like tennis i don't know <laughs> or hockey a lot of people who play hockey are pretty good at netting um but <laughs> another thing too is with larger trout especially if we're entering a pool they can uh feel that electrical field beforehand and it's often that they'll charge at us to try and break that field so sometimes they won't actually they'll be partially stunned if that but it it's more of an active netting than actually you know than scooping them up you have to you have to bring your a game if you want to catch those trout and that's what our goal is yeah the yeah. big trout are the ones we're after because they uh we're going in during spawning season and so we want to get the big ones that are carrying the most the eggs you know and the the ones that are going to produce a lot of offspring and so if we catch a big trout that's a that's a big deal so we're, we're cutting out possibly hundreds of offspring that could be, you know, raised in the creek the following year. Um, but also getting little ones is just as important, but which, which brings us to the end of the day, we have to, so we're removing brown trout and rainbow trout from the creek. And this is kind of the, the ugly part of the creek or the project, but also um, kind of cool. We, every, every trout that is removed from the stream is used for beneficial use. Um, we don't just, a lot of other removal projects, you just throw the fish along the bank or sink them. But every single trout that we take out of the creek either goes to uh, human consumption or to aviaries at the Hopi and Zuni reservations. Um, and so every fish we catch, we're cleaning, we're bagging them, and we're carrying them all the way back to the bunkhouse and putting them in, in vacuum sealed bags and freezing them. And the next time the helicopter comes down, we, we send them out.
What makes the fish program unique is that none of the trout that are killed are wasted. Each trout is for beneficial use for humans or even animals. And this was brought about in collaboration with Grand Canyon's traditionally associated tribes. These are people groups that have called the canyon home for thousands of years. Many of the tribes expressed concerns about how the program was operating in a sacred space. At this point, we're going to explore an oral history conducted by Paul Hurt of Arizona State University. We're going to listen to clips from his interview with Kurt Dongoski, who has been involved with the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program since 1991. Kurt was the director and principal investigator for the Zuni Cultural Resource Enterprise and often represents the Zuni tribe in issues related to river management. So when I uh, was at Zuni, uh, in t- 2008, um, a uh, Zuni religious leader came in and asked me, are they still killing fish in the Grand Canyon? I said, yeah. He said, that's not right. They should stop that. And I said, well, why? And um, he explained to me, well, he explained to me this, this story. The Eastern Travelers came to the Little Colorado River where the Ahitas warned them that as they crossed, they must hold their children tight. In the middle of the river, the children began to turn into water creatures, fish, turtles, frogs, and snakes. Some parents dropped their children into the water where they were lost. They mourned, but as they came near the place of the Kokko, they heard singing. In the water were the spirits of their children. Thus, all aquatic life are the ancestors and kin to the Zuni people. Um, that event, that all aquatic beings are Zuni children, are viewed as Zuni children, mm-hmm. whether they're native or non-native, it doesn't matter. And so, from a Zuni perspective, you are killing these fish, you are killing Zuni children. You are killing beings that Zuni has a special relationship to. A lot of uh, benefit that Western science could take from the Zuni perspective of this sense of stewardship and the sense that the environment that you're dealing with is composed of multiple sentient beings and that your actions on that environment have consequences long-term consequences. I think it would would make scientists much more respectful Mm -hmm. of the animals they handle, how they treat them, how they deal with them, what sorts of projects they they want to uh, design. Mm -hmm. Let's hear from another oral history of Lee Kuanwisioma, who was director of the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office for 30 years. He's a leader of the Hopi tribe and has been involved with the adaptive management plan of the river in Grand Canyon since around 1989. 
the big one was the uh, the 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 electric electrocution of those uh, 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 trout. Uh -huh. That was a big controversy initially to to Hopi, because we we were the only ones that commented on that proposal. So our record stands that one their initial. Uh, uh, area that they were going to uh, zap those trout by the thousands was right at the confluence, you know? A sacred site. A very sacred site to us, you know? And it, it, it encompasses this kind of concept of the spiritual domain. So, while it's our finality, as I told you, it was also the beginning of our spiritual life. I one day hope to become a cloud person, to visit all of you people. That's how we believe. So it's the beginning of life for us. So our, I said to Kurt, you know how I would best explain it? Is that if they kill all these fish, they're taking life away from living creatures. And Hopi, when they do their prayer feathers and prayer offerings, it's for the perpetuation of life. It's not for the end of life. Nah. So even though that proposal had a purpose because the effect on the humpback chub and the overpopulation, you know, it just didn't sit well with it. If they dare do that, it's going to create this aura of death. That was our art. As, as many people know, Grand Canyon is sacred to a number of Native tribes in the area. And um, our work was you know, it, it has significant impact to, to um, non-native fish in Grand Canyon, and that was of concern, particularly to um, the Zuni tribe. The work that we're doing in Bright Angel Creek, um, which is removing the uh, brown and rainbow trout, was of concern to the Zuni tribe. They're um, a very sacred place to them is Ribbon Falls. And so um, it was through lots of consultation with them and other tribes that it was decided that all um, all fish that we remove from Bright Angel Creek or, or otherwise um, will be saved for um, human consumption. So all the fish that we take out of um, Bright Angel Creek, we clean, uh, freezer seal, mm -hmm. um, and then we'll take that fish and, and it become we'll fly it out, and it's available for um, for human consumption. Um, we'll do, we've delivered uh, fish to, to Zuni as well as Hopi and Navajo. Um, some of the smaller fish that we remove from the creek um, that's not easily cleaned will freeze and um, we'll give that to tribes for their ceremonial eagles. And so we've delivered fish to Zuni, um, to their aviary. We've also delivered fish to um, Navajo, to the zoo there. So um, we try, you know, as, as much as is feasibly possible to um, to save any of the fish that we, we take from the creek. 
or the river um, and give, you know, make it available for um, people or, or animals, other animals. So I think that's a really important component of the work we do. Um, you know, there's just a lot to consider when we do any kind of conservation um, or restoration work in Grand Canyon. And there's, I think it's important to recognize the tribes that um, hold it sacred. The damage caused by Glen Canyon Dam is done. So now what do we do after the fact? How do we manage a degraded ecosystem? How do we protect the resulting endangered species? And how do we do so as human beings with a respect for life? These are the negotiations we face. In December 2020, National Geographic published an article Human-made materials now equal weight of all life on Earth. A quote from the article reads, The total weight of everything made by humans, from concrete bridges and glass buildings to computers and clothes, is about to surpass the weight of all living things on the planet. Many theorize we are about to enter a new era, the Anthropocene, where humans are the dominant force shaping the planet. At the start of the 20th century, the mass of human-created stuff weighed about 35 billion tons. Today, it's 1.1 trillion tons. That means every person generates more than their own body weight of manufactured stuff in one week. As countries across the world continue to develop in a global economy, over the next 20 years, that stuff is predicted to double. Projects like Glen Canyon Dam are exponentially growing all over the world. Creatures like the humpback chub are being driven to the brink of extinction. Places like Grand Canyon National Park are some of the only safe havens left on Earth for plants and animals. Places they don't have to worry about crossing the road or having a house built in their backyard. Let's wrap up with a question we can all ask ourselves. How do you balance the stuff you need with cultivating a richer life? My name is Kate, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Behind the Scenery. We gratefully acknowledge the native peoples on whose ancestral homelands we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who make their home here today. Thanks to Joe Scrementi 
for contributing his song, Invisible Present, to this episode.